Well, hello there, and uh, welcome to another Geographical Association podcast. This is the second one that we've done, which is happening remotely due to COVID-19. And today I'm talking to Chris King, who's Emeritus Professor of Earth Science Education. There's so much for us to talk about. I'm not really sure where to start, but, but this, this interested me. I was, I was watching the future of Geos, the Geoscience Summit this week on YouTube, which I know you've been involved with. Um, and I was listening to Ian Stewart talking about the future of geosciences. And he put on a rather depressing uh, slide, which showed the decline of A-level geography, uh, A-level geology entries from 1971 to 2019. And it showed quite two quite distinct dips. And it, it, really, it really was quite worrying. It, it is a great shame, yes. Um, uh, if, if the graph that Ian was talking about shows that uh, when uh, four uh, AAS and A-levels came in, we started to increase and we were increasing quite steadily. And then when government funding cuts made only three A-levels possible, that's where the current uh, worryingly steep decline began. And there were about uh, just over 1,200 entries last year, which is half of what there were a few years ago. So it... It's a shame, and uh, but we're doing our best through the summit, like the one that you know you, you talked about, to try and reverse this trend. I think uh, uh, we ought to include a link to that because it'll be up there on YouTube for quite a while, and it's worthwhile teachers going back to and, and listening to the conversations there and discussions afterwards. Ian Stewart talked about the the reenchantments of geomorphology and geology, and uh, that's where I'd quite like to start because talking or looking at your career path, uh, it, it just sounded so interesting and so inspirational because you read geology at Bristol University, That's but then right. you became a diamond prospector for De Beers. So yeah, that indeed. was yes. five years in South Africa, Swaziland and Australia. It's like I'm interviewing a real life Indiana Jones of geology and you, you, found, a, you found a diamond mine. I did. We, we, um, uh, well, I was very fortunate. Um, uh, a colleague who was employed by De Beers at the same time that I, that I was spent five years in the Namib Desert. And uh, I had these, these wonderful opportunities. And uh, do, do you want me to just tell you what, what happened in, in Swaziland that resulted in, in the finding of the diamond mine? Oh, I do. Yes. Fascinating. <laughs> well, it was quite an amazing thing. I need to explain. This might take some time and I apologize uh, if, that, if that's the case. But um, if you, when you look for diamonds, when you prospect for diamonds, you don't actually prospect for diamonds. You prospect for kimberlitic minerals. And these are uh, garnets, chrome dioxides and ilmenites. They're beautiful things. They're red, uh, lustrous red, uh, green and, uh, and black. And those are the things you look for. And then if you're very lucky, you trace those back to the source that they came from, which is a kimberlite. And one in 200 kimberlites that are found have enough diamonds in to make them viable. So that's the background here. You prospect for kimberlitic minerals. And kimberlites occur in pipes. Uh, they're, they're, they're vertical tubes uh, up which fantastic uh, volcanicity happened. I say fantastic because it probably moved up these pipes at the speed of sound when the uh, eruption was happening and uh, brought the diamonds up to the surface. And so these things are, are circular on the surface. 
but there are also kimolytic dikes, which are um, cut across the, uh, the geology, and kimolytic sills that run parallel to the geology. And uh, the, the background to that is that I was asked to go to the King's Game Reserve in Swaziland because they found an, a kimolytic mineral anomaly. And this was a north-south anomaly, and uh, it had three microscopic diamonds in. Very, very unusual. And so I was asked to go there, and this was fantastic for a young man. I was in my early twenties. We were in the game in the game reserve. There were my um, we we had uh, zebra and gazelle that you could go out and see in the evening. Once my truck was butted by a rhino, it was just just absolutely wonderful. Uh, but as far as the prospect was concerned, we had this north-south anomaly, and all the people in De Beers thought that this was going to be a kimolytic dike, and that, that had some diamonds in. So uh, we, we we dug some holes, and we found that there was no evidence at all of a kimolytic dike, and everybody was mystified by this. The only thing that we found were sandstones, Jurassic sandstones, that were uh, that were dipping to the east, and that's that's important. So. Uh, Having done that, uh, said they were mystified, what I did was we, we did a trench across the, the deposit and we took specimens of the, of the sandstone all the way across. And in one of the sandstone layers, we found very high amounts of kimolytic minerals. Now, this was astounding because uh, nowhere in the world had secondary sources like a sandstone had large numbers of kimolytic minerals like this in, apart from possibly in Brazil. So people were quite amazed by this. But they still thought, well, this can't possibly be terribly interesting. And so I found that we found this, uh, this layer. We took, um, took samples from it. We looked for the kimolytic minerals in it. And uh, we found diamonds in the kimolytic minerals. And uh, I went to um, uh, a conference. And, and I can remember it. This is in the Sutu. And I met my boss in the, in the bar in the Sutu. And he said, well, how's it going, Chris? And I said, well, in my pocket, I've got 100 diamonds to give you. And I can remember his face now. What? You know, this is just absolutely amazing. And it's also a bit illegal because you're not allowed to walk around with uh, uncut diamonds <laughs> in your pocket. <laughs> so, 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 so we, we found this, this sandstone deposit that, that had diamonds in. But uh, it looked like it probably wouldn't be economically viable. So what happened then was uh, we brought in a sedimentologist who looked at the paleocurrent directions in the sandstones to find out which way the river had flowed during Jurassic times. And it found that the river had flowed from the east. And this is where the dip of the rocks is important, because if the river had flowed from the east, then the source of the diamonds should still be exposed. So have I got that the way that the, the rocks were dipping west, and so the, the exposure should be to the, to the east. And so my, my team then went out towards the east, and eventually they found a kimberlitic anomaly, a circular one. And uh, at that stage, the, the, the camp had become so huge. We had 70 people in the camp, and I was only in my 20s. This is when they, they transferred me to Australia. But just as I was leaving, they started uh, pitting this, uh, this diamond deposit, and that was the diamond mine. And that diamond mine ran for uh, 14 years, and there have been hints that it might, might reopen. But... This is just such an unusual and amazingly uh, amazing story. Uh, and I was just very, very fortunate. This really doesn't happen very often. So it was um, a great, great time for a young man. Well, you'd think everything would be an anticlimax after that, but not so, because you've gone on to have a fantastic career. Um, <laughs> cause after, but after that, it was, a, it was a change again. You went back to, to Reading University to do 
uh, a master's in sedimentology. That's right. And I, I was fired up by this, paleo, uh, uh, this chapter in the paleocurrent data. That, that's what really fired me up for sedimentology. And then that took you into education. Yeah, well, that, that's interesting. I, I didn't know really what to do when I left Reading. So I applied for lots of jobs and I got two interviews and they were appalling jobs. And I applied for the PGC course at, at Kiel and uh, I was accepted on the course. And so I went there and I'm just so, so glad I did. I've been absolutely fascinated by education ever since. It has some downsides and all us teachers know about that. But I think generally it is the most fantastic job. And uh, I still enjoy teaching now. So you were 19 years, I think that's right, at Altrincham Grammar School for Boys? I was, yes. I went there for two years and stayed for 19. And then in 1996, off to um, Keele University to be the director of the Earth Science Education Unit. Well, no, it didn't quite happen like that. I, I was an education lecturer at Keele where they uh, did, had a PGC in geology. And it was while I was there that we started the, uh, the Earth Science Education Unit. And that's a bit of a tale of its own because we came up with this idea and sent it to a charity. And they said, no, no, we, we, this is a really good idea, but we should be funding this. The government should be funding this. And of course, the government... Um, the government didn't. The idea I should explain was to take earth science workshops to uh, uh, PGC students and teachers across the country and show them how to teach earth science effectively. But fortunately, I um, uh, encountered a, an oil industry colleague who, when I said that, said, oh, well, maybe we can help. And that was the beginning of the earth science education unit. And, it, uh, and uh, well, we had a, a remarkable success through that while the oil industry funding continued. You've done workshops, I think, now to um, more than 40,000 teachers. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, 40,000 teachers in the UK. Yeah. And it's also, it, it was, its aim was to teach teachers across the world. Uh, well, that, that, that wasn't the original aim. The original aim was to improve things in, 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 in the UK. And the important thing to me about that is that when we gave the workshops in the UK, we got fantastic feedback on the day. But everybody involved in professional development will tell you that you need to get fantastic feedback on the day. That, but that doesn't actually tell you very much. What we, what we then did was we went back to schools which we visited a year before to find out if they'd made any changes to their curriculum. And that, um, we got a 30% return rate and every school had changed its scheme of work in the light of our workshop. So we, we can show remarkable impact. And, and um, that's not true for any other hardly any other educational initiative I can think of that they've got that sort of evidence that they make a change in schools so that's why one of the reasons why it was successful across uh, across the UK um, since the oil industry money um, stopped we have only been able to carry this on on a, a rather ad hoc basis but yes we are now training some field officers in Europe and they started yet uh, um, earlier this year and they've run 400 uh, uh, they, they, they've trained 400 teachers across Europe so far so very pleasing now there's a link there as well with the Earth Science Teachers Association which is where I I probably come in as a as a geography teacher because the the materials that the that Esther produce is just absolutely fantastic so how does that link work 
Well, that, that, that's, that, that's interesting. I'm sorry, another tale here. I, I am going on a bit. I apologise for that. <laughs> but um, uh, Esther has been involved, is, is central now, but at, at the time it was uh, on, the, on, the, on the margins. Um, there was a, the International Year of Planet Earth in 2008, and we put in a bid to the International Year of Planet Earth to, uh, to get funding to run a whole series of the workshops I've been talking about in countries around the world. And uh, we, heard no, we had no reply. And uh, we eventually found out that they didn't have enough money to give us anyway. But when we didn't receive a reply, we thought, what, what else can we do to, to help people across the world? And the idea was to take the workshop activities and put them on a website, a website that we called Earth Learning Idea. And this was originally aimed particularly at the developing world. So all the, uh, all the, the activities uh, were low tech and could be run in any classroom and uh, to our surprise that 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 was remarkably successful and we've continued doing that ever since and the Esther link there is we had uh, already had Esther science of the earth materials and we use those to um, put together the workshops and we use those also to as the first activities on the earth learning idea website and um, that continues. We're getting 40,000 downloads a month at the moment of that. There's nearly 5 million downloads altogether. And we are astounded by, by this success. And, but very pleased, of course. Well, I think we, we need to put the link in uh, to the notes that go with this, because I still come across teachers who, if you talk to them about the Earth Learning Ideas website, say, what? And that they don't know about it. And I'm sitting here just looking at it on the my tablet there are I, th I think i'm right there are 338 now different activities that's absolutely right and uh, next week there'll be 339 because we had a new one every two weeks and they're all freely downloadable they're all practical and the the, the great advantage for me as a geography teacher would be that I, I might not be able to get into a lab these things are just so easy to do even if you haven't got a lab because that's how they were designed in the first place. Well, that's absolutely right. And I, I've run them in uh, hotel rooms, in uh, uh, theatres, not, not lecture theatres, in theatres, in uh, corridors. So you can, you can uh, th these are easily adaptable materials, but most of them, some of them are a little bit more higher tech because we moved a little bit higher tech and we moved towards uh, more abstract um, activities because of the interest across the world. But um, yes, you, you can do them in a geography classroom. We know that because we've done them at the GA conference and uh, they've been popular there as well. And there are online videos too. So it's not just activities. It's not PowerPoint, not, although, although they're, they're, they're really good. There are PowerPoints, there are worksheets, there are activities, but you've also got a lot now of, of video workshops that go that explain what's going on and give the videos as a background too. Well, that, that, that's, that's, that's all because of the, the wonderful coronavirus, he said in inverted commas, <laughs> because I was supposed to be doing um, a workshop to science PGC students at Bristol University, and they said, well, can you do it online? And I thought, well, we must try and do this. So we filmed our dynamic rock cycle workshop, which is uh, appropriate to, for geography teachers just as much as science teachers, and that, they ran that at Bristol University using the PowerPoint to drive it and the videos connected with it. And then my, my colleague, Alison Dunby at um, Cambridge University said, uh, well, we've got, um, can you do something on plate tectonics for our PGC students here? And I'm pleased to be able to tell you that today they are 
running that workshop based on the videos and the PowerPoint that drives it. And she's going to get some feedback from me for that. So I'll, I'll be able to let somebody know in the future about how well that went. I want to talk to you in detail about that a little bit later on. I think a lot of teachers will be interested in the plate tectonics. Um, I, I saw a, a tweet about a week ago about geological time scale and how to teach that. So I went on to Earth Learning Ideas and had a look at that. So, so there's some fascinating stuff. Just before I do, I'd like to ask you about the underpinning of it, because if I've understood this right, what underpins all the work that you've done is cognitive acceleration through science that's the been the approach uh it is uh, i trained as a, a a case trainer cognitive acceleration through science education trainer when i first started at keel university i knew nothing about it until i did and uh, the reason why people got excited about case across the country and incidentally there was cage developed as well which you might be aware of that's the cognitive acceleration through geography education and uh, this, this was strange to me because um, when you try and teach in a case or cage way, you don't try and teach more science or geography. What you're trying to do is to teach the pupils to think more effectively. And it's really weird to come out of a classroom not having taught more of your subject, but having used your subject to teach people to think. So that's difficult to get your head around. But the remarkable results for CASE, this is why it took off around the country, and it really did, probably about a third of schools at one stage across, uh, across Britain were doing CASE, third of secondary schools, and it went into primary schools as well. The, the results were tr amazing because um, I remember sitting reading about this on the train um, and saying, oh, well, um, science um, achievement increased by a third. And you think, well, that's, that's impressive. But then you think, really? Um, could it be that they were doing other things in the school? Could it be that teachers were teaching differently? Um, could this be an, that, that sort of effect? And then I read the next line, which said, and the, the, the um, improvement had happened in English and maths as well uh, by a third. And you think, whoa, this is, and those are the only subjects that were tested. If they've tested geography or hairdressing or car mechanics, no doubt that they would have showed a similar improvement as well. So you start to think, well, this really is impressive. And when they did the same for GCSE results, they found 20% improvement in, in um, science and maths and English. And they didn't test geography again, of course. So these are really, really remarkable results. I think you need to be a little bit wary. Um, I tell you, would you like to hear my own theory about why this is successful? I think so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, 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 this is almost unbelievable that you can teach 11 and 12 year olds for 30 hours. That's the case intervention and that they should get those remarkable results when they get to GCSE level. My theory is that the teachers who, te who, who taught, that through, taught case uh, use the case approach in all their teaching from then on. And so they, they, the children didn't just get it for two years. They got it through throughout their uh, education at school and um, uh, and all the other pupils of course got the same and I also think that some teachers who were probably using case style approaches and I believe that I was beforehand when they understood what it was and how it worked and how to do it more effectively they used it better and more uh, um, with more power and so that's my that's my theory about why case was effective and why I still think, uh, I always have, but I still think now that more important than teaching science or teaching geography is to teach children to think. 
we should use our subject as a vehicle to enable them to be better citizens by thinking more effectively. That's what I believe then. That's what I seriously believe now. Well, it's interesting because the first podcast that I did was with Becky Kitchen about the, the DfE funded project, Critical Thinking for Achievement. Um, ah, okay. And much of the comment from the teachers was that these activities are brilliant. They're not just uh, linked to geography. We can do them. And, and it, it, we actually, we, we did it in, in association with the ASE anyway. So th those approaches embedded themselves across for the teachers who who were enthused by it. We got a really, um, a really interesting feedback from teachers. It, it, it had been, it, it had increased attainment, but it also increased the students' involvement because they found it so much more interesting, the, the way that we were doing it. it, it they were excited and, um, and challenged by the work because it made them think. And that was what they'd appreciated was the ability to to think rather than be given stuff to learn. It was a different. It was a, just a different approach. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I, I don't know too much about that project, but uh, I, I think the way that we um, you use this is not just a teaching science or teaching geography. It's doing science, doing geography. And I strongly believe that's what we should be doing as well, that we should get engaged people in looking at the data, um, looking for patterns. This is what, what CASE does. In, uh, encountering cognitive conflict, um, that's when the stuff doesn't fit the data. Talking about it, that's metacognition. And then using those ideas and taking them to new scenarios, that's called bridging in CASE terminology, to see how that can, they, they can explain other things. This to me is doing geography, it's doing science. And that's what we should be doing, I believe, in the classroom. I think that's really important for field work. The number of students who would say, I've got it wrong when they've come back with their field data because it doesn't, didn't fit to what they were expecting to get after they'd read the textbook. Have you collected the data effectively? Was your sampling effective? Then it wasn't wrong. So let's find out what, why it's different. Their first reaction is always, oh, I'm wrong, but they're not wrong. It's just that their data, and they might have not taken such a large enough sample if it's been a river study or something along those lines, but it's about getting them to think. And I, I, I agree with you in what you said there. It's, um, yeah. they, they don't necessarily get those opportunities. In geography, that's, the, that's our best opportunity is when fieldwork comes back. And it doesn't quite agree, but there are, there are reasons why. It's not wrong. There are just reasons to explore. And, and this is how our, our thinking moves on, because the, 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 there are, uh, when we talk about plate tectonics later on, we had a wonderful model that explained tectonics, and then you find some data that doesn't fit. And that's when you develop new models, and that's when you test the new models, and that's when you find out that actually the original model probably wasn't right in the first place. So it's, <laughs> th th this, this is important stuff to, to, to find cognitive conflict and things that don't, don't, don't fit, and then move on. Well, shall we? Shall we talk about the plate tectonics now? Because that, that is fascinating. I've, um, I've gone onto the earth learning ideas now um, and pulled off some of, the, some of the work, some of the activities um, and the videos and had a look at those. It's fascinating, particularly for me, because with, I'm on the, the, the GA's Physical Geography Special Interest Group, chaired by Duncan Hawley. And some while ago, 
we discussed whether we would do something at conference about new ideas in plate tectonics. All right. And we put together a workshop that looked at ridge push and slab pull. We started off with a quiz for teachers to see what they, what questions they would get right. And we did a whole series of activities, including some actually that, uh, that drew on earth learning ideas, which we can talk about in a minute. But it caused such consternation because teachers were then saying, what, you mean it's, it's not convection currents? Well, what's going on then? And, and can, shouldn't we still teach convection currents? Because that's what the exam uh, will be asking. And uh, if students come out and say something different, will they get marked lower? We, it, it really caused a stir. We had teachers coming up to us for the whole of conference. It was, it was, it was fascinating. We then had a look at, at some of the textbooks and there were, there were very few that were challenging mantle drag at the time. Although uh, the papers, the, the academic papers, were firmly convinced that the evidence for mantle drag was, was limited. You're quite right. And, and to, to come back to your question, which is a more general question about uh, if, if the textbooks have something that we now know that is wrong, what should you teach? That's a, that's a really important question for teachers. And we, we quite often face that in our workshops. And my response is this, that I can't tell and I shouldn't tell anybody what to teach. But um, if they know what the correct thing is, then at least they know what the correct science or what the correct geography is in, in the background. And certainly as far as geology A-level is concerned, um, if people um, put the, the, the wrong answers down uh, because they had been, been taught wrongly, then the, um, the, the, the quality of that question probably wouldn't be good enough to be used in the final mark. And so that, 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 that will probably be, be discounted because we, we, you're quite right. We have this problem that textbooks teach different things from reality. Um, and that's, that's how that will be addressed in a, a geology A-level. Although I can tell you that the, uh, the next geology A-level will have a question about that, which would show what the right answer was, because that's a, that's a way we can help to, to train teachers as well. So it's, it's a big issue. But uh, to come back to the, the whole business of um, how plates move, it, it is a challenging one. As you mentioned already, there are three theories. Um, there is the mantle drag theory, that's the convection current theory, where, um, and this, uh, this goes back to Arthur Holmes in the, uh, in the early 1920s who came up with this idea originally, that there are currents in the mantle and they, um, the plates ride on their backs and they're carried along and that's how they move. And uh, then there is the slab pull uh, idea that you mentioned, and that is where uh, a subducting plate, that's where the plate goes down into the mantle. The reason it does that is it becomes denser and denser as it moves away from the ridge, becoming, and that's because it becomes cooler and cooler. And eventually it becomes am amazingly, and this is cognitive conflict, it becomes amazingly more dense than the underlying mantle material. And this causes it to sink and in sinking it drags the plate along behind it that's that that's the uh, the slab pull idea and then there's the ridge push idea that uh, the new plate material is made at uh, diverging margins they're higher than the surrounding areas and the new plate material slides off that that's the ridge push and it pushes the plate in front of in front of the in front of it so those are the three ideas and uh, we, we have these ideas and if we are um, doing science, and I believe we are when we're doing geology and physical geography, then we need to interrogate the data. 
and look at what the data says. And uh, one way of doing that is to see how um, uh, data on the speed that plates move correlates with other data. If the mantle drag um, idea, the convection current idea was correct, then the, the logical way of thinking about that is that all plates should be moving at the same speed and they should particularly be moving at the same speed on either side of a diverging margin. Now, if you look at the movement of the whole plate, not just near the diverging margin where the magnetic stripes tend to indicate that the plate um, uh, movement is about the same, but if you look at the movement of the whole plate, you find out that they are moving at quite different rates and that, uh, that discounts, therefore, or doesn't provide any evidence for the mantle drag theory. If we then move on to slab, uh, to slab pull, there should be a correlation if slab pull is correct between the length of subducting margin and the speed of the plates. And if you plot that up and you can measure it in the classroom and plot that up, you'll find that there's a pretty good correlation. And so that's why we believe that is the main plate driving mechanism nowadays. Then we come on to ridge push. You look at the speed of the plates and the percentage of margin that, that is um, diver, divergent margin and see if there's any um, correlation there. And to be honest, there isn't much correlation there, which is why geologists have come around to thinking that the main uh, way of plates being driven is by slab pull, but where that's not effective, we think that uh, ridge push might be important in the slower moving plates, and it might also add a component of movement to the faster moving plates as well. So that's what the evidence shows, and we'll be producing some earth learning ideas to uh, to to look at that with some some models that people can uh, uh, a video model that people can run in the classroom, or you can do um, a pupil model. And I think that's the way that you and Duncan had a go at this at the GA conference, wasn't it? That's right. So, so when you did that, what, what did people say? Well, they all they all took it away because they were thinking, "Oh, crack! I don't know how I don't know how I'm going to do this in class." Until Duncan showed them that model, and it's so clear, it's so easy. Um, they said, "Well, that's it. I've got one. Finally, I've got something that I can just take away and show." Uh, it was it was it was great. It was a, it was a bit of a a soul moment, I think, but people saw the light. That one, and just the other, the other thing that we did was a little bit like your um, uh, your Lego model, but much less complicated. Just putting some, uh, it was a chain on a on a table. That, that, that's and, great. Yeah, yeah, that, that that works beautifully. And if it's it's overhanging the end, it'll fall off, and then suddenly you've got a an increasing speed as it goes. It certainly does. Yeah, you've got to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a great way of showing it very simply. Yeah. And you, 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 can, you, you can put a, a textbook on the table with, the, with the, the bulk overhanging and it'll fall off. Why? That slab pull. Well, we've got links to all of these. And I'm not sure whether, because you're updating these at the moment. Have you finished them? Because I've pulled four off, um, off the Earth Learning Ideas website. But I'm not sure if you're updating them more because we can put the links straight into these for teachers uh, who are... No, I'm afraid those won't be published until September. So they're, 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 they're not there yet, but we, I guess we have a, you know, a two-week publication um, stream, as you've heard. But they'll be published in September and everybody will be able to take them off then. And I'll send you the link when that happens. Okay, so we'll put that up as soon as we can. I, I, I think some of these, you've got, um, you've got figures that students can calculate and, uh, and graph to make those sorts of conclusions. And there are the activities that uh, you can do practically and, and models that you can put together. So all of that is, uh, I think is fantastic for, for better understanding what's going on. But also, as you uh, said earlier on, 
that that we're creating new knowledge all the time and and that's another one i think for students to understand that what's set in a textbook isn't necessarily the correct ideas even even currently because there's a lag by the time a textbook comes out uh, you, you, you're quite right and, and and that is a problem and we we should be aware of that and it, it is an issue for the classroom i know because I, I i've been in classrooms and i'm sure you have when students are pointing the book and say it says this here sir yes this is this, this is what it says <laughs> and so th this is the reality and to for them to uh, to begin to understand that the textbooks might not be right actually is is huge cognitive conflict and something they possibly never encountered before so it, we shouldn't say it's a small issue it is a big issue but it's something that if we are carrying our sciences forward we need to we need to tackle one of the other activities that you've got in there is, uh, which I think is a really fun one, is the, the Geo Battleships. It's a game that I'm sure everyone knows, but it, just for students, when they're looking at patterns or, or we're asking them to look at patterns, we see a pattern. I'm more of a generalising perhaps a little bit, but teachers, we see a pattern. We know what we want them to see and they just see a lot of dots. <laughs> and then asking them to juxtapose two patterns two lots of dots and make a judgment it's it's quite a complicated thing that we're asking them to do but the idea of the the, the geo battleships i think is really it's a really good one well you, you're quite right but if, if we look at a bit of the, the the background here but we're asking them to do difficult things because to spot a pattern in the first place needs uh, abstract thinking that's that's formal thinking skills i'm talking using case jargon here and then you take another pattern and ask them to, to put this, those two together and spot the, the similarities and differences they're taking two abstract things and sticking them together then so we shouldn't say that this is a this is a this is a small thing to do but of course, this is the stuff that develops thinking. And if you can do it in a fun way, as we do in Geo Battleships, and it doesn't actually take very long because they actually spot the question, the, the, the pattern pretty soon. And when they've done that, you've done it. You don't need to carry on and win the game. You need to uh, then say, so this is the pattern. How do we explain this pattern? And that's when we, we can move on in our thinking. I think Duncan did a slight modification. That's Duncan Hawley, who's chair of the physical geography special interest group because he was interested in helping students see that there wasn't an entirely direct correlation between the earthquakes and the plate margins because of the the dip of the rock and where the earthquakes uh, were located when you looked at the point on the surface where the earthquake was and it's slightly offset it, it, so that, that's interesting too and, and that's brilliant. And then we find we find there are volcanoes where there are no plate margins. So, so how does that work? And this is this is where the science is. This this is where the geography is. And of course, the answer to that is we're talking about Hawaii and we're talking about the mantle plume and the plate riding over the surface. And that gives us more evidence for plate tectonics. So, so uh, yeah, this is uh, this is the the stuff that can actually fire people up and think, oh right, we we can ask questions. We can answer questions. I can do this myself. And I can become a geographer. Ooh. So if there's anyone out there listening who hasn't gone on to the Earth Learning Ideas website, please do. There is so much stuff on there that will give you practical ideas for things to do in the classroom. It, it, this brings me back to something I wanted to ask you about, because um, it was about a week ago I saw a Twitter question about geological time. And the question was, how this is, I've just lifted this off. How do folk tackle the concept of geological time 
and so I went onto the Earth Learning website and I had a look and I found the toilet roll of time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> making, a, making a geological timeline to take home. I thought it's just as well people didn't spot this at the start of the COVID outbreak because I could <laughs> see some parents getting very steamed up about this one. What? You want 46 sheets of toilet paper? Get away. The idea is brilliant. Just talk us through how that works. Well, well, can I take you back to another Earth Learning idea before I do that? Because uh, the, the work of my colleague Roger Trend, a physical geographer uh, on geological time, showed that most of the population have no idea of the length of geological time and they have no idea of the order of events either. So there are two huge misconceptions around geological time. And so the first way we have tackled this is an earth learning idea called the washing line of time. And what that is, uh, we, we actually call it a timeline in your own backyard because it might be used by um, American people. But uh, what, what that is, is you give people a whole lot of events on cards and you hang up a line and some, you give them some pegs and they uh, first of all sort them out into the order they think they might have and then they pin, pin, them, pin them onto the line. And that's very revealing. First of all, there's huge discussion about which order they're going to have. And then when they hang them on the line, they usually hang them sort of uh, a, a, a stead moving steadily across the line. Little realizing that very little happened at the beginning of, the, uh, of Earth's history in terms of life and dinosaurs and all those things. It all happened right at the very end. And then when you've done that, and that takes about, it depends how you do it, but that take, can take 15 minutes or half an hour. Then you can really consolidate the learning through asking them to complete the, 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 uh, the toilet roll of time. And then if you can take that out into the corridor, because it's 46 sheets long, which is, is quite long, it really begins to show them how geological time works and how, of course, course toilet rolls work as well. There's another activity that uh, I, I found fascinating, partly because of what we were saying earlier on about students being able to understand that people, eminent people, sometimes geologists and geographers, but not always, because in this case it's Bishop Usher, eminent people came up with ideas that were utterly bonkers, but it was the thought of the time. So I think Bishop Usher calculated from the Bible that um, the earth was about 6,000 years old. I think he calculated it almost to something like two o'clock in the afternoon when it started. And uh, that, um, that calculation was published in the, uh, well, it was, it, it was in a, a side note in the 1701 King James Bible. So the earth had, had started um, at, in 4004 BC, I think, was, uh, was what he calculated from the generations in the Bible. And people believed it. Well, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I see that as an early scientific theory. They, they had no idea of the age of the Earth. So how do you work out the age of the Earth? Well, we've got this written account of how the Earth works. So why not use that? So I think actually Usher was brilliant in, in, in doing that. I mean, you can debate about the accuracy and how, how the begats and that, that's how people were born <laughs> and what, uh, actually works. And you can also uh, be a bit suspicious that he went, then went on to say, I think it was on the 27th of October at nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah, something and, like that. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that happened to coincide with the beginning of term at Cambridge University. So, so, so you can be a, a little bit suspicious there. But as an early scientific idea, 
I think we have to uh, allow that as being uh, amazing. And of course, it really did seep into consciousness, as you say, because if it's a footnote in the Bible and everybody is basing their lives on what the Bible says, and they seriously did in a way that we can't imagine now, then it's not surprising that people really thought 4004 BC or 6,000 years ago was the age of the earth and why it was so difficult for geologists and uh, to, to, to argue at a later date that this wasn't the case because everybody believed it as to refer back as everybody possibly believed that there were mantle currents driving plates before we had the evidence. The latest earth learning idea takes us a little bit away from all of that um, and I thought we might just look at that because I think it's the latest one that's gone up. And I remember doing some work on this. Um, when the Action Plan for Geography came out and the government gave the, the GA and the RGS some funding to do free courses, we were looking at uh, different ways of thinking. And the article's called Lost at Sea, isn't it? It's uh, the amazing it's journey of the rubber ducks around the world. The, the friendly floaters, so-called. Yes, indeed. And it's, a, it's just a fascinating way of, um, of seeing how the world works through, a, through an accident. Yeah, I, I suppose it was um, uh, a container that fell overboard. It was, and it had, uh, had rubber, rubber ducks in it, and also some other creatures of different colours. Uh, just for people who haven't come across this before, uh, I thought that happened in a storm off, off Hong Kong in the China Sea, I think. And then these rubber ducks started reappearing in all sorts of places around the world and people couldn't work out how this was. And, but the answer, of course, was ocean currents. And then some, uh, some scientists got, got hold of this idea and they began to seriously plot where these things occurred and uh, that they have mapped out the surface currents of the earth using those in a way in detail that we couldn't have imagined beforehand. So you're quite right. A very fortunate accident, unless, of course, unless, of course you happen to be a, a rubber duck. I think on the GA website, there are still some lessons based on the, where the rubber ducks have been and how they got there. So if oh, anyone's right. looking at, at, uh, at doing that, they can tie in the earth learning ideas now with some of the, the earlier work that was done by the Geographical Association. It's just huge. The, the, the wealth of material on there but it is immense. But that's not all. So, and that's all free. But um, you've... Publishers must hate you. You've produced a book online called Exploring Geoscience. And this is a free download. And it's, this is immense in its scope. It's a great read. I, but you don't need to take my word for it because Ian Stewart says, this is what he's, he's written, I think, in the forward. It's wonderful to be able to welcome the colour and vibrancy of the Exploring Geoscience textbook. It, it, it looks like a lifetime's work. It must have taken you forever. It, it took uh, it took a time. It did, but uh, but the the reason for this is that we've done surveys across the world of uh, earth science being taught in schools in countries right across the world, and we found that uh, um, most people say that uh, the quality of the textbooks they have is either moderate or poor, and certainly our work would 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 reinforce that. So if teachers are trying to teach earth science but they're using very poor materials, how how on earth? Are they going to do it as well as they could? And so that was the rationale for, first of all, devising a, a recommended international syllabus, and that's also on the website, and then writing a textbook to support it. 
And uh, what we have done since then, and this will be published in the next few months, is there's a, a companion textbook that has uh, 300 activities, many of them are Earth Learning Idea activities keyed in to the chapter headings, and also lots of deep questions to try and get people to take their thinking further about some of the activities in there. For anyone teaching physical geography, it's a superb resource to dip into. Um, I've just been fascinated by all the things that I've, I've looked at in there. If I was still teaching, I'd be, um, I'd be plagiarising bits all over the place in the, in the nicest possible way. I'm at the, I'm at the cutting edge of plagiarism as, 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 <laughs> as, long, as long as I recognise where it's come from. But it, it's just it's inspirational stuff. And that's fantastic. I, I, I think you're demonstrating you're a good teacher if you're at the cutting edge of plagiarism. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> this is going to sound a little bit like this is your life, but I think a couple more things need to be said. Uh, in 2003 you were awarded the Geological Society's Distinguished Service Award. And in 2011, the Halstead Medal for work of outstanding merit deemed to further the objects of the association and to promote geology. So just congratulations on that. All right, thank uh, you. It's, it's such a fantastic achievement. And you were Professor of Earth Science Education at Keele from 2006 to 2015 when... You retired from paid work and then started doing even more than you did when you were paid by the sounds of things. Well, I've just car carried on working and I think my wife's quite pleased. Um, but yes, I, I don't get paid for it anymore. But you know, <laughs> I enjoy it and, I, 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 I'm, and people seem to value it and that, that's, it, that's even better. I'd like to ask you some questions from that perspective now, really. Um, first of all, We've, we've talked a lot, and, and your work's been in, in earth science and, uh, and in geomorphology mostly. And I'm a physical geographer, but I'd like to ask you, what do you see as the relationship between earth science, physical geography and geology? Are they distinctive or, or do you see them as, as connected? And, and just how? How do you see them? Well, I, I see and I always have seen physical geography as a science. And so, and geology is another science, and biology and chemistry are, are all other science. And we're, we're all bringing these things together, and nowadays maths and economics and all those things to study the earth. And so, I see no distinction at all. I mean, uh, I think uh, uh, physical geographers look slightly more to the surface, and geologists look like slightly deeper. But in fact, there's an awful lot of crossover there. We're all doing exactly the same job, in, in my view. And what is that job? Well, it's the job that we've been talking about. We, we look at look at look at the, the Earth, and we try and spot patterns, and then we try and explain the patterns, and then we try and test those explanations, and then we modify them. And that's how we know how the Earth works, and in particular nowadays. We're getting uh, handles on climate change and plate tectonics because of that thinking. And so I don't see a distinction at all between the two. And interestingly, in, in Japan, they, they don't either because uh, in Japan and Taiwan and um, the Philippines and so on, they don't teach geography in the same way that happens in many other countries. They teach science that has four strands and the four strands are chemistry, physics, biology and earth science. And the earth science comprises geology, physical geography, oceanography, soil science, astronomy. Those things are together in their curriculum and they study the whole earth in that way. You did do 
an audit of textbooks. I, I know you've said that it was pretty soul destroying, but you did a, an audit of, <laughs> of textbooks for earth science and you found a number of misconceptions in that. Oh yeah, that, that was, uh, it wasn't just me. We had, we had a team of people, thank goodness, looking at these books. Uh, this was back in the early two, 2000s. We looked at every science textbook um, that was being used in the UK at the time. And we looked for the, their earth science content because this is when earth science was a, a, a more substantial part of the science curriculum than uh, unfortunately it is now. And we found that the coverage was pretty awful. We found an average of one misconception or oversimplification that was wrong for each page of earth science one per page. The, uh, the worst book had um, 66 errors in 23 pages. It was absolutely desperate. And so what we did was we took each of those misconceptions and we wrote, um, we, we wrote uh, the, the same thing correctly using a similar number of words, using a similar le level of English to show that it could be done. And we sent it to the publishers. And of course, that was, that was largely ignored. Um, so it, that was a pretty soul-destroying thing. But when I talk about moderate to poor textbooks being used across the world, that, that's what I'm talking about. Textbooks that have errors like the ones I've, I've talked about. I probably can't ask you then about uh, errors in, in geography textbooks because I, I, I think if that was too soul-destroying, destroying to do that you probably didn't go on to <laughs> to look at physical geography in <laughs> in textbooks uh, i think duncan and uh hawley inspired by the work that you done asked us to do some work with um, with as textbooks to have a look at physical geography ah okay and we certainly we certainly did identify misconceptions there and quite um quite low level comprehension activities so ones that wouldn't prod students to understand patterns they would be able to answer the question that they were asked but they didn't necessarily understand what they were looking at um so we found quite a number of those where i think teachers i think the message for teachers is be careful with textbooks um well, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the interesting things is if you go to Japan and who knows, after coronavirus, you might be able to go to the textbooks there are all vetted by the government. And so you have someone to blame if it's wrong. But of course, we, we don't have that in, 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 in Britain. So there's no real compulsion on a publisher to publish an accurate textbook. Uh, I'm, you know, I should be, I, I might be get, get, get shouted at because of this. Uh, but we've had conversations with, with, with publishers who said, well, now when it comes to the next edition, we'll revise it. But do they really mind if they're selling textbooks? And the, fee the feeling that I have from these conversations is they don't. As long as they sell the textbooks, they're not really interested in them being absolutely accurate. They just want to sell the textbooks. Hmm. Oh, we had a little bit more positivity, I think, than that, on, particularly on the plate tectonics. The, the, um, the publishers that talked to us were keen to get it right and were keen to ask. Ah, well, that, that, that's really good. So, so well done for persevering. <laughs> Finally, perhaps I've got a couple of thoughts or a couple of questions on your thoughts. Um, with this lockdown, when I was talking to um, Mary last week about wetlands and places of, uh, places of solitude and places uh, just sharing the earth and, and appreciating the earth in a different way because of the pandemic, I wondered if you thought that it's going to have any impact on the way people view 
geosciences? Uh, well, that's, that's, that's very interesting. I, I think um, one of the things that seems almost certain to happen is people doing a lot more working from home. And of course, as you recall, I was due to come to Sheffield and I haven't now come to Sheffield. We're doing this remotely. So we've saved that, um, that, 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 that diesel fuel in my car. And uh, I was due to uh, give um, a seminar in Istanbul yesterday. And I did. But I did it, of course, remotely without having to go. So I, I think that, that not because um, people worry about the planet, but they, they will worry about their own uh, the way that they live. They will um, they will travel less, and they will um, use, use these these things more. So I, I think that, that that is a good thing. And I also think people are becoming a little bit more aware of the world. And um, I regularly look at uh, the, the, the maps of the coronavirus spread. On, uh, on, on, on the computer and I spotted countries there that I wasn't quite sure where they were and now I know uh, where they are and what's happening there and it, it is it is a bit devastating for some of those so that that interest that's uh, fired up in me I think will have been fired up in a lot of other people as well so I think a bigger global awareness of what's happening here can only help last one this is going to be a really tricky question just because I picked it up yesterday from uh from watching the uh, the YouTube video, but if we're to look at um, conveying to students the importance of geology, geomorphology, an inspirational call, what do we need to do? Well, that is a big question, um, and uh, it, it has lots and lots of ramifications. But the way that uh, we we try and start and we have some learning ideas to support this, you won't be surprised to hear. <laughs> yes. it, it, it's just look around you. Uh, all the material in this, uh, in this place where I, I'm, I'm uh, zooming from has come out of the ground, apart from the, the, the bits of timber. And actually, there isn't much timber around here at the moment. Uh, and so where's that come from? And uh, if it's come out of the ground, well, you've got to find it, and you, you've got to get it out of the ground. You can't just say, oh, we're going to stop digging holes in the ground because that doesn't work. Um, when you move on to the future, you, um, people are talking about the, uh, the transition to renewables. And of course, that's going to be really important in the future. And we're going to use less oil and gas, although whether it'll disappear altogether, I'm very, very doubtful. But to uh, support renewables, you need billions of tons of copper, of lithium, of cobalt, and uh, 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 much more that, than is being found and utilized at the moment. So where's that going to come from? So um, in, in the future, actually, the work that we're doing in physical geography and geology should underpin and will underpin the way the planet moves forward. So if people want to become part of saving the earth, part of this conversation, they should take geography, they should take geology, they should get involved in these questions because that's where the solutions are going to come from. They're not going to come from economics or politics. They're going to come from us working out how the earth works and helping them to understand how, what they need to do to take that on board. Well, I think that's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating take and, and very inspirational. And what a place to finish. I think we leave it there. That's been wonderful. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Well, you've asked me some gentle questions, John, and I've been absolutely thrilled to be involved in this. And if we can carry some of these teachers and students with us into this fantastic new world, 
where what, what they do what they say and what they find out can change things for the better well isn't that wonderful haven't we got a real privilege here that we're using and helping people to move forward so many thanks for this opportunity